Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Sleep Matthew Show. For tuning in to the radio show. <laughs> I've got him back, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, I am so glad to have him back uh, with me and with us today. Uh, Dr. Grant Sapersky. Uh, his primary vocation is helping people and organizations uh, and our society as a whole avoid disaster through science-based decision-making and emotional and, and social intelligence. Uh, his expertise comes from being a scholar uh, specializing in wise decision-making, emotional and social intelligence and goal achievement, uh, as well as mental health and emotional well-being and altruism as a professor at Ohio State. He also runs a nonprofit dedicated to popularizing uh, research on, on these topics to a broad audience uh, and uh, intentional insights. Welcome back, uh, uh, Dr. Webb. Thanks so much for having me back, Philippe. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> well, you're back because you have an amazing uh, book. Last time we talked, we, we, we were just kind of talking about uh, uh, strategic thinking and, and, and one of your processes that uh, you also have in this book. But this is a <laughs> this is a book of books. This is it's called the Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based uh, guide. Uh, now, the funny thing about a handbook is uh, this book is about five, almost 500 pages. So it's it's the book of books in terms of uh, science-based thinking. Uh, I absolutely uh, know for a fact that uh, if you 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 read this book, absorb this book, and apply that's very important. Apply the principles in this book. Mm-hmm. It will change your life. This is not a self-help book. This is not a, a feel-good book. This is not a positive thinking book. This is a strategic uh, thinking book. This is a book that will uh, move you up into uh, a level of uh, only a few people on the planet know how to think uh, in this way to truly change either their life or their business or both. Uh, so I, I absolutely thank you for writing this book, The Truth Seekers Handbook. Talk to me about what, what, what made you decide to write this book. How long has it taken you to, to compile this work? It's taken me about uh, four years to compile this book. So, But uh, let me go back to what has uh, caused me to write it. So I'm a scholar in decision-making at Ohio State University, and I saw people from my early years making really bad decisions around me. And so I decided to study the topic. How do you actually make good decisions? How do you avoid having false beliefs and make good decisions? Because decisions are the basis of everything we do in life. We decide how we want to lead our lives. We decide who we want to marry and who we want to have friends with. We decide what community or church group we want to belong to. We decide what kind of professional careers we want to lead and where we want to lead in our professional careers. Those are big decisions. But... You know, if we, let's go into our professional careers. Every day we make small decisions that determine our success in our chosen careers or in our relationships or in our community groups and everything or in our politics, uh, civic engagement. Everything rests on decisions. And if we can't make good decisions that are based on research, then we're just going to fail and we're going to have disastrous outcomes. Now, we as a society, unfortunately, don't teach our children or our adults, how to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. So the research on this topic has been coming out relatively recently. Uh, it's just you know, on the forefront and the cutting edge of research and how we actually make decisions based on how our mind works. Because we need to understand how our mind works. We're not robots. We can't just you know, think that, oh, we're just going to logic our way to the truth. We need to understand our emotions, our intuitions, our gut reactions, and how we can use those to make good decisions. Because if we can't combine the logical part of us with the emotional part of us, we're just not going to end up anywhere good. So mm-hmm. we are, as a society, don't teach children how to do this. We don't teach adults how to do this. Business leaders, they're supposed to be you know, good decision makers, but they make horrible decisions all the time. Look mm-hmm. at what's happening with Wells Fargo right now, you know, as a result of their horrible decisions to permit their sales employees to make up fake numbers 
uh, in order to uh, have more money for themselves. Well, look what just happened in 2008 with the financial market crash. People make terrible decisions in business all the time. And we need to, we're not, we don't get training for this. And my book is meant to address that. It's meant to help us guide people in making good decisions in all areas of life based on science. But it's not a self-help book. It's not a book of, you know, I'm a guru and I will tell you what to do based on my life experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is straightforward science research. This is what studies show about how we should make good decisions in all areas of our life. And it's explained in a way that anyone can grasp. Very easy, very simple. I've written articles. Right now, my articles are the two two of my articles are in the top six popular articles of Scientific American. I've written articles for many articles for Lifehacker, Lead Daily, The Conversation, Time, The New York Daily News, and Newsweek, and so on. So I know how to write for a broad audience. And so I combine my skills in writing for a broad audience with my knowledge of the scientific research in this book. This is amazing. Um, the, the, well, the title of the book is Truth Seeking uh, Handbook. What is truth seeking? So truth seeking is figuring out what is going on in our reality, what is going on in the world around us. Because, you know, there's a famous uh, computer programmer saying, Gigo, garbage in, garbage out. If mm-hmm. you can't have good information coming in, then you're not going to be making good decisions. So in order to make good decisions, you need to figure out the truth of reality. And we so often don't look at the truth of reality. You know, there was a leadership IQ study, uh, a four-year study that interviewed over a thousand board members in venues where the CEO was forced out and uh, fired. And so they found that in about 23% of cases, uh, the reason for firing the CEO was that the CEO refused to face reality, denial. And this is CEOs, people at the top level of leadership, 23% mm-hmm. were forced out because they failed to face reality. And there's a reason, you know, so many marriages, one-third to two to a half of all marriages end in divorce. And a big part of that is because people don't face reality. And uh, people don't face reality all the time. In politics, there's so much manipulation and deception. People make the bad decisions all the time because mm-hmm. they don't face reality. So how do you actually face reality? How do you figure out the truth? What are the psychological blocks that inhibit us from seeking the truth? It's been really fascinating to do this research and to learn the research because I recognized a lot of the problems within myself as I was going through my own research and figuring out how to address them within myself and how does the research, the research shares a lot of strategies for how you can do that. So, you know, I'm not immune, you know, I make mistakes all the time, but now I know how to correct them. And mm-hmm. I want everyone to be able to have this research and not just you know, fail this reality and make bad decisions because of it. So this is why it's called the Truth Seekers Hand. Wow, this is incredible. Well, <laughs> I'm gonna jump or, or jump or around in, in, in these chapters. There's about 51 chapters in this book and it's absolutely amazing. But one of the things that you said is that you've made mistakes and there's a, a, a chapter uh, in here which I'm looking for, and that is um, something about uh, our failures um, uh, and basically turning our failures. Failing your way to success. Failing your way to success. Walk us through that. Sure. So we as human beings are really not taught to use our failures well. So unfortunately, we don't recognize that failures can be really helpful in order to succeed. Unfortunately, we don't learn from them. What we typically do is when we fail in something, we tend to ignore it. Why? Because of another chapter in this book. So let me get to this other chapter and then get to the failures chapter. So there we have uh, two systems of thinking, the autopilot system and the intentional system. The autopilot system is the emotional system. So it's our gut reactions, it's our emotions, it's our intuitions. And they can be mostly good, but in some systematic ways, they're bad and they're problematic. And so we have another system called the intentional system, the logical and rational system, which can help us correct the mistakes made by our gut reactions, by our intuition. And so the autopilot system is the system that we evolved that uh, helped us evolve to where we are in the savanna. So that was the savanna environment. 
So it helped us escape from saber-toothed tigers immediately. It helped us fight to defend our tribe from attack. So it helped us survive, but it hasn't kept up with the modern world. Evolution takes a very long period of time. So it's unfortunately, we are not evolved to live in the modern world. We are evolved to live in the savannah world where we had around, you know, our, our tribe, maybe 100 people around us, 150 people around us, not in this huge modern environment where we have a, a flood of information coming at us, where we have to interact with so many people, where we have, you know, hundreds of, you know, many hundreds and thousands of quote-unquote friends on Facebook, and we don't know how to interact with these people. Our mind is not adapted to it. So the autopilot system doesn't react well to failures. So here's where we get to failures. The when our intuitive reaction to finding out we, that we made a mistake is a defensive response. We defend ourselves either by withdrawing, that's the flight response, you know, so if we see a saber-toothed tiger, we flee from it, or we have the fight response where we attack something that attacks our tribe. That's our default mo mode of responding to finding out we made a mistake because we interpret finding out that we made a mistake as a threat. Now, in our modern environment, that's not good. Imagine if we come, you know, if our boss comes to us and tells us, hey, uh, Joe, you, you know, hey, Philippe, you made a mistake and I want you to correct it. And what, how, was, how should we respond to this? How would you respond to this? You know, it's not good to respond by withdrawing, ignoring our boss when our boss tells us that, or fighting back and shouting at our boss, no, I didn't make a mistake, you're stupid. No, not not going to help you keep a job right. So that's not a healthy way of dealing with mistakes. Our gut intuitions don't serve us well. So we need to change our mental model. We need to change the way we approach mistakes to welcome finding out that we make a mistake. And mm -hmm. that's a change of a mental habit. You know, we have mental habits of all sorts. You know, we develop the habits to brush our teeth. We develop the habits, you know, to, uh, incur to say hi to people and so on, to engage politely even when we don't want to necessarily listen to them. This is another mental habit. So dealing with mistakes in a healthy way. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is mental math. Mm -hmm. What are mental maps? Are mental maps uh, both uh, emotional and, and, and intentional? So mental maps are how we perceive the world. So we have a certain perception of the world in our mind. Now, what we tend to think is that the way we perceive the world is the way the world actually is. That's our intuition. We see that we think of the world as a structure in a certain way, and we think that the mental map in our mind corresponds to what is actually the reality of the territory. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So that is a fundamental aspect of being a truth seeker, understanding that our mental map is always flawed. It's always flawed. Mm. Always we have to be humble and recognize that our understanding of reality is incomplete and in a number of ways it's flawed. Why is that important? Because if we think that our understanding of reality is perfect, we won't be able to change our mind based on new information. And our, wow. it, it's, it, it actually is the case that our understanding of the world is imperfect. And we change our mind, we have to change our minds all the time. You know, let's say you're in a relationship with your loved one and your loved one says something that uh, is unpleasant to you or surprising or upsetting. Well, what does that indicate? That indicates, that does not indicate that your loved one is wrong in some way. That indicates that your mental map of your loved one is wrong. That your mm -hmm. perception of your loved one is wrong, is bad, is problematic. It's not about uh, her in my case or him, you know, if you have that sort of relationship, but it's about me. It's about my mistake. Or if, you're or if you're in a workplace situation and your professional colleague says something that's really surprising, it seems outlandish. Now, that's, again, that's not about him. That's about you because your mental map of your colleague is wrong in some way. We typically, unfortunately, we tend to place blame on the colleague or on our loved one for being wrong or bad, but that's not really appropriate because it's about us, it's about our mental map of the world. So 
what we need to do is develop another mental habit here. So it's all about mental habits, about strategic tools. So we need to have the mental habit, the strategic tool of recognizing that our model of the world is always imperfect and very quickly updating our beliefs, having the ability to say, hey, my mental model is wrong. I'm getting this new information about the world from my colleague or my loved one or whatever. I'm going to quickly fill up this empty space in my mental model, in my territory, in my mental map of the world, and revise it to be more accurate. So having that understanding that our mental map is not in accordance with the territory of reality is very healthy from the perspective of changing our minds to be in accordance with reality and being a real truth seeker. You talk about being, there's a chapter called How to Be Perfect. Uh, obviously, that's kind of oxymoronic, right? <laughs> um, and and uh, you know, flying by our gut, you know what? You know, I'm I'm going to make a gut decision, and and that's where we really kind of screw up sometimes. And sometimes we get it right, and but there's no strategy uh, in that. It's not intentional necessarily. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not necessarily intentional, of course. So we have what is important to do is to observe that we can put our life into our control and be happy and successful for managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So that is where that chapter is crucial. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a silly name, but it gets at the reality of where we want to move. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that we, how to be perfect, is not about us being perfect. It's about what is the ideal. Where do we want to go? And one of the crucial things about this ideal of where we want to go is to recognize who we are as human beings. And so what the recent research shows about who we are as human beings is that our mind is not a single united totality. It's a combination of different modules. So the autopilot and the intentional system that I described earlier, that's a rough description of our mind. In a more complex, fine-grained description, we would have, see that there's many modules of our emotions. If we go into the autopilot system, our emotions, our intuitions, they fight against each other all the time. You know, we are complex. We are not, uh, and we are contradict ourselves all the time. So let's say, again, we have a situation with the boss who tells us that we made a mistake. There's a part of us which wants to withdraw and say, no, you know, totally wrong. I, I, I feel bad about that, so I don't want to engage. There's a part of us that wants to shout back at our boss and say, no, you know, how can I make a mistake? I'm awesome. <laughs> and there's another part of us that, that uh, says, no, no, you can't do either of those things. You need to go and uh, keep your job. So how do you keep your job? You need to improve and, you know, make a mistake. And there's another part of us that, that's thinking of what we're going to get for dinner, right? <laughs> so there's, we are complex. We are not a totality. And so we need to recognize that. And if we recognize that we are not just an individual, single, total entity, then we can see that we can manipulate various parts of us in order to achieve our long-term goals. And that's where the crucial thing is, that we can manage our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. We can see which of these parts of us we want to endorse, Mm -hmm. which of these parts of us we want to give more energy. That's a really important concept that we have willpower. So willpower is an important uh, element of what we have. It's uh, the mental energy that we can use to manage our minds and our moods and our behaviors. So we can choose which of these modules to, uh, to favor. Do we favor the module that withdraws from the information that our boss gave and just nods and you know, ignores the information? Do we favor the module that wants to yield back at our boss? Do we favor the module that's wondering what we're going to have for dinner? Or do we favor the module within ourselves that says, well, we want to keep our jobs, so let's listen to the boss and correct the mistake. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I was you, I would favor that last module. And so this is the module where we give our willpower to. That may not be the module that our gut says we should give our willpower to, but that is going to be the one that aligns most with our career goals. And this uh, example applies to anything, again, in our relationships, in our uh, civic engagement. You know, there might be a politician who is trying to really appeal to our base emotions, whatever they may be. 
Now, do we want to let those politicians manipulate us, or do we want to make our decisions based on what's good for us and our goals and our country as a whole? So that's another way that we can choose not to be manipulated and which module of ourselves do we favor. So that, that's what the chapter is about. How to be perfect refers to how to orient toward the ideal state where our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are going to be most aligned with our long-term goals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is great. Now, I remember in a previous conversation with you when we were talking about critical error, think, uh, critical, uh, uh, error thinking, and, we, and one of them was confirmation bias. Uh, you, mm -hmm. you dedicate three chapters to prob probabilistic uh, thinking. Um, mm -hmm. it, would confirmation bias be uh, one of those probable, probabilistic uh, ways of thinking? So, so let me separate those. So, uh, confirmation bias is a bias where we tend to look for and interpret information in ways that conforms to our current beliefs. So let's say we're in a you know, going to a work environment. If we get into, uh, if that CEO who, you know, who might well be fired uh, tends to ignore information that doesn't conform to her beliefs that uh, she is a really excellent CEO and the leader of the company, mm -hmm. then that, that CEO would tend to ignore negative information. And the more, the, and eventually, if she tends to ignore that negative information, the company would suffer and the CEO should be fired. Now, that's a very typical thing that happens. CEOs often get the status of CEO because they have very strong opinions about, they're very optimistic and self-confident and they have very high opinions of themselves, which is not always a bad thing as long as you are realistically optimistic. Mm -hmm. So that means that you're able to be incorporate the information about the, you're self-confident about yourself, but you can also incorporate negative information and be confident about your ability to deal with this negative information and uh, be able to correct the course of your company when you, as you incorporate this negative information. The same applies to relationships and other areas of life. So the confirmation bias can be really harmful if you're not watching out for it. If you're not watching out for our intuitive, everyone has this tendency to do this again, you know, go back to going back to relationships and divorces. Many mm -hmm. people end up in divorces because of confirmation bias, because they don't look at the information that uh, their relationship is going awry, that there's tension, that there's struggles, that there's problems. They just sweep that under the rug, and they end up having a divorce because of that. So confirmation bias is very dangerous. So that's confirmation bias. Now, probabilistic thinking is a different concept. Uh, it's related to it, but it's uh, somewhat distinct. It talks about how we want to approach reality. How can we approach and evaluate what's real, what's true? So, for example, let's go back to the boss talking, telling us we made a mistake and asking us to correct it. Now, what is the likely scenario? Why is the boss telling us this? There's a part of us, again, going to modules, that might think that, well, the boss is telling me this because uh, the boss hates me and wants me to fail. Mm -hmm. So that might be one module. And there might be another module that says, well, the boss is telling me this because the boss really wants me to succeed and she wants me to do really well and succeed, and this is why she's telling me about this mistake, so that I don't make these mistakes in the future. Now, how do we figure out which of these situations is the reality? Well. That's where we apply probabilistic thinking. Now, we can apply it in any of these two worlds. We don't know which world we're in. So probabilistic thinking speaks to how do we figure this out? How do we figure out whether the boss wants us to fail and just is telling us this mistake because you know they don't like us and want to point this out and want to write us up in the reports, or they want us to succeed and they're telling us this, about this mistake so that we can improve our performance. So the way we would do so from a probabilistic thinking perspective is to gather more information and see where the evidence lies. For example, is the boss telling us uh, this, looking at the boss's appearance when she's telling us, this, is she, does she appear angry? Does she appear upset? And you know, is she saying, you know, I will write this up in a report about you? Or is she saying, hey, you know, I want you to succeed this, you know, is she's just genuinely trying to help us uh, 60. So the interaction with our boss can provide some evidence for one of these two scenarios. 
then uh, past history, has the boss in general been supportive of us or not supportive of us? What has been the past history? And that can provide some evidence for either of these two scenarios. Then you can also observe what happens as you try to correct the mistake. Is the boss upset that you corrected the mistake and that you would try to not make this mistake in the future because she really wants to get you fired? Or is she happy and pleased that you corrected the mistake? You know, so you can look at, you can observe what evidence you have. And by this probabilistic thinking, you can see what is the likelihood of the world that you live in, where the boss doesn't like you or the boss likes you. And again, the same method can be used in relationships, in politics, and civic engagement, and so on. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, in this book, you <laughs> cover many different areas and aspects of, of life. One chapter is called Free Money is No Joke, Confessions of a Former Skeptic of Basic Income. Um, mm -hmm. Unpack that for us. What does that mean? Sure. So I talk about myself and my experience with learning about basic income. So this has to do, one of the uh, things that this book covers is civic engagement. And by civic engagement, I mean both political engagement and charity, nonprofit, and so on. So a really interesting uh, thing, development in the charity world is basic income, which is the idea of giving people money to live if they don't have a job and if they can't get money any other way. Now, so I use that as an example of updating beliefs. When I first heard about basic income, it seemed kind of, I didn't really buy it uh, as an idea because, uh, you know, I was worried, well, what are people who give money to just, you know, first of all, why should people get money if they don't have a job, if they're not being productive members of society? So that was my one of my concerns. Another concern was, well, will these people spend their money on alcohol, tobacco, and vice products and various problems? So various other things, will they really spend it on food? You know, maybe it's better to give them uh, welfare in terms of food stamps and other forms, you know, shelter and housing and things like this. You know, so if we want to support people who don't have money, maybe we should support them in this other way instead of basic income. So I was skeptical at first. But then I started looking at the research on basic income. And it turned out that basic income actually is surprisingly effective. And you know, again, I, I was surprised by how effective it was. So my mental model of reality was mistaken. And again, I always try to, I always keep aim to keep an open mind and recognize that my mental model of reality is always going to be flawed, always, mm -hmm. in all cases. So because I keep this open mind, I was able to easily incorporate new information. And there were a number of studies that showed that people, you know, didn't really spend when they're given basic income. They don't spend on cash, on tobacco, alcohol, and so on. And they actually didn't do less work. That they, uh, it turned out that people who received cash transfers, so basic income, they improved, they improved both their income and their assets and had higher psychological and physical well-being than people who didn't, and, but they improved, they actually didn't do less work, which was surprising to me that I would think that they would do less work, but it turned out that they didn't. And also, it turned out that uh, it, basic income is quite a bit cheaper than things like providing housing and shelter and food and so on, because providing housing, shelter and food through uh, charity has a lot of overhead. You have to have a bureaucracy that does this. You have to have people who uh, spend their time doing this, who are hired to do this. You have to have you know, food banks and food and, and so on. Whereas the capital capitalist system is designed to provide this service very efficiently. So if people are getting basic income, if they're getting this money, they can go to the regular capitalist system, not to charities, not to nonprofits, and get inc and get money from them, and that in improves the market economy. So it doesn't take money out of the market economy, it improves the market economy. And so actually giving people social support through basic income is just as effective and in some ways more effective than giving people money through social welfare of various sorts. And it's cheaper, it's cheaper. So, I mean, I have a basic uh, desire for people to not you know, die in the street. I care about people. 
you know, this is one of the reasons I do this work because and I popularize the research and decision making for us, you know, volunteer my time and give my money to it because I care about it. I care about people. I don't want them to suffer. Mm-hmm. So based on this new information, I updated my beliefs and I changed my mind about basic income. Now I believe that basic income is actually quite a bit more effective than giving social welfare in other modes of giving social welfare. So that's why I talked about, and uh, basic income has other benefits. It gives people more autonomy. It gives people a sense of dignity. And so all of these things together cause both a number of conservatives as well as liberals to favor basic income as a mode of helping people. And that's why I updated my beliefs to believe and see basic income as a much better way of supporting people than uh, I had previously believed. Excellent, excellent. Um, you have another chapter that's called, that, 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 uh, uh, called Defend Your Happiness Against Emotional Traps. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Yes, so that's, that was a really interesting chapter and it also describes an updating of my beliefs about a certain uh, area. Uh, when uh, my wife and I were looking for a house. So that, uh, we went to uh, look for a number of houses in um, the summer of 2016. And I remember that there was this one house that we entered, which was really beautiful, had a really beautiful backyard. It was just gorgeous. There were trees. It, it was in the, there were trees that, that were casting shade all over it, and it was just great. So it was now, just thinking of how beautiful it would be in the fall, that there would be kind of leaves everywhere, foliage just would be great. And it was really nice. And my wife and I, we then, after the house search, we were talking about which house we want to get. And that house was just, you know, outstanding. And we decided, well, that seems really great. You know, it was very beautiful. And then we started analyzing the situation. And uh, we recognize that, hey, you know, the house itself is maybe not as good as the as some of the other houses. So let's kind of evaluate what's going on and apply effective decision-making strategies. Now, going back, the house, the beautiful house with the backyard, it turned out that we were suffering from a case of attentional bias. Attentional bias is a psychological phenomenon, one of the problems that I described in our psychology, where we pay most attention to the thing that is most emotionally salient. Emotionally salient means that it's the thing that arouses the strongest emotions in us. And the backyard aroused really strong positive emotions in me, and my wife as well. And uh, for another example of where it plays a role, uh, people are really afraid, many people are really afraid of taking airplanes because they've seen many airplane disaster movies and you know, accidents and so on where lots of people were killed. But recently, there was the Amtrak disaster where lots of people were, where a number of people were killed. So people are, it's all in the news. People are really scared of it. And now many people, less people will be taking trains and taking airplanes. Well, apparently the research shows that airplanes and trains are actually quite a bit safer than cars. So, Car, you have about uh, a five times less chance of dying in a car in a train crash than in a car crash, and about a 700 times less chance dying in of an airplane crash than a car crash. But people don't think about this because cars are very uh, everyday activities. We don't see many uh, reports of accidents in cars. We don't have our attention drawn to it, but. Uh, airplanes and trains, you know, when they crash, we have a lot of attention drawn to it. So that's emotional thinking based on that attentional bias. It's actually much safer per mile to take a car, to take a train or especially an airplane rather than a car. So similarly, the emotional attachment with the house was due to the beautiful backyard. But then we started to evaluate things and we thought and recognized that the backyard in that house will only use it for about half a year when the temperature was warm. I live in Columbus, Ohio, which is, you know, it gets chilly in the winter, so it's kind of chilly right now. Mm-hmm. And so that's a problem, and that we would use it only about half the time. So what we would need to do is actually evaluate our use of the whole house and all the rooms for the whole period of the year. 
And we went through a calculation, and so uh, the chapter itself describes how to go for a calculation when you're making a complex decision, such as buying a house, or moving to a new city, or deciding on a career, or a career change. Something that requires thought, something that requires good decision-making strategies, using what's called a multiple attribute utility theory, where you're looking at a decision with multiple components. So for example, how do you compare the living room in a house to a living room in another house? How do you compare the bedroom there to a bedroom there? The a basement in one house to a basement in another house. So what you need to do is put those side by side, all the relevant attributes, factors that will cause you to make a good decision, backyard versus backyard, rate each of those attributes and compare them one to another. And so by using that systematic decision-making process, we decided, we saw that house that we were originally thinking was just not nearly as good as another house where I'm actually right now. <laughs> and it's a great house. We chose it. It didn't have nearly as good a backyard as that house. But overall, all the aspects of the house together were much better than the, other, the previous house that we were considering. So fortunately, we didn't fall into that emotional trap. Many other people would have. Many other people would have fallen into the emotional trap and gotten the house because it's a beautiful backyard and didn't think that hey, I'd only use the backyard half a year and they wouldn't have considered all the mundane properties of the other house, such as comparing you know, the space in the bathroom that you'd be using much more often than uh, you'd be using the backyard. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. wow. that's, what the, uh, that's what it's about. So making really good decisions on important questions. That's, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, some people who will come to this work um, are coming to this work uh, playing the, the, a victim of the blame game where they are blaming themselves for all the things that may, that they perceive to be wrong in their lives. And you have a chapter called Your Feelings Are Not Your Fault, mostly. <laughs> for their feelings. You know, if they look, if they are in a job context and they look at their colleague and their colleague uh, has just had a promotion, they feel, they might feel jealous about their colleague and they would feel blame themselves for feeling jealous. Or let's say that they uh, have a loved one who they see, you know, interacting with someone of the opposite sex and they would feel jealous for that person. Or many other things. Or let's say they, their friend had a baby and they are resentful of their friend having a baby because their friend will have less time for them. And they would tend to beat themselves up. They would say, hey, these are bad feelings to have. I shouldn't have these feelings. And that's a very common tendency in all of us to beat ourselves up over feelings that we have, to feel bad about our experiences and say, no, these are the wrong feelings to have. That's a big problem because it doesn't take into account who we are as human beings. It doesn't take into account that we are complex, we are contradictory, and we have many modules within ourselves. It doesn't really account for who, for what the research shows is how our brain actually functions, mm -hmm. how our mind actually functions. So we have these many modules. If we try to repress this module, if we try to repress our jealousy about you know, work promotion or our resentment of our friend having a baby or many other things, then that part of us would just fester and it would escape and would boil out at some future time. You know, maybe we'd get angry with a colleague without any reason, or maybe we'd stop calling that friend who had a baby, you know, just because we're resentful or, you know, be resentful about the baby and somehow that would express itself. That's really harmful. Repressing our feelings is always harmful. So a strategy that's much more effective is to acknowledge and accept our feelings, say that, hey, this is a feeling I have. I can't control that feeling. I can't, you know, so that's the first step. I can't control the fact that I have that feeling. It's just a part of me. It's just a module within me. It's part of my, uh, you know, the complex contradictory elements in my mind, just like the module that made me want to shout back at my boss when my boss was telling me about a mistake I wanted to make uh, that I made. Or the module that made me want to uh, listen to a politician who was trying to manipulate me by appealing to my emotional, you know, by having an emotional appeal. So it's just a module within me. It's nothing bad to have that module. It's just 
whatever it is. It, it, it is real. So accepting the reality of one's emotions. But then remembering that we can always make the choice about how we behave. We can't make a choice about how we feel. We can make a choice about how we behave. We can't make a choice that we want to eat that second piece of chocolate cake, but we can choose whether we eat that second piece of chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. So that's the behavioral part of it. You have to differentiate between your emotions and your behaviors. Unfortunately, very many people don't understand that gut reactions, their emotions, their intuitions are not always serving them right. So, you know, they might feel that if they feel resentment toward their friend for having a baby, they think that that's the appropriate emotion to feel. Or jealousy toward a colleague or having a second piece of chocolate. So that's not a problem. You can choose to differentiate between your emotions, your intuitions, your gut reaction, and your behavior. Because your gut reaction will, in many cases, not serve you well to achieve your goals. So Mm -hmm. if you differentiate between your gut reaction and your goals, then you can choose to follow behaviors that will lead you to your goals. That's the differentiation. So that's the first step of not being responsible for your emotions. So in the moment, you can choose to have different behaviors. In the long term, so that's one thing, that's in the moment. The the other component is the long term. In the long term, you can choose to change your emotions. Now, that's not easy to do. And the chapter goes into techniques for how you do that. You can choose to change that module that resents your friend's baby or is jealous towards your colleague or wants to eat the second piece of chocolate cake and redirect it in a more healthy manner. And that takes more effort. So that takes examining what are the beliefs underlying the emotions. So for example, with let's say resenting your friend's baby, you can understand that, you know, hey, you really like your friend and you want to spend a pro you know, you like spending your time with your friend and now the, you believe that her having the baby will take away that time from you. So you need to understand what is underlying that emotion, that feeling of resentment. And once you realize that feeling of really, you know, the underlying the feeling of resentment. Or let's say with your colleague that you have jealousy toward the promotion, you can see that, think about, hey, you know, the colleague uh, was, you know, you believe that the colleague was maybe performing not as well as you, but uh, the, your colleague received the, the promotion instead of you. So you could see that, you know, it's based on a certain comparison of the performance of your colleague to your own performance. So you need to understand what the base And then you can explore and see how you can change that feeling to be more aligned with your goals. So for example, with a friend and the baby, you can decide that, hey, you know, maybe I'll be choose to spend my time in a way that's helpful for my friend as she's having the baby, and I can still spend my time with her while also helping her. So maybe, you know, delivering food over to her and when she's having the baby and spending time chatting with her. Or with your colleague, you can go to your boss and say, hey, you know, I see my colleague got the promotion. That's, you know, I'm pleased for him. Can you help me uh, tell me about the my performance and how can I get a promotion as well? And maybe your boss will tell you that you've not been performing as well in a certain domain as your colleague, and you may not know that because you, you don't know what's in your boss's mind. You can read your boss's mind. So you can learn based on the situation what uh, would help you get that promotion that you know, your colleague got instead, and that way you can change your feelings toward the situation because now, okay, you know, maybe I wasn't performing. It's not that my colleague was was actually performing worse than me. I just was not looking at this component of my job where I can be performing better. And you can focus your energy on performing better in that component of things. Mm-hmm. So you have some control in the long term, both over your emotions and your outcomes, but that's kind of a more long-term perspective. So you need to really understand deeply what's going on before you manage your emotions. Excellent, excellent. You know, uh, mental illness is one of the things that a lot of people don't think they have control over. It's epidemic or pandemic uh, in this uh, country and some would say around the world. Um, you have a whole chapter about how you escape the darkness of mental illness. Walk us through that. Yeah, so that is a chapter about how do you figure out that you have mental illness and what do you do? So I'm someone who suffers from mental illness. I developed anxiety disorder and I went to therapy. I, so I go to therapy right now. 
I do, uh, I take medication, psychiatric medication, and it's not easy to recognize that you have mental illness. This is not an easy thing to do because it doesn't feel intuitive. You know, it's very easy, it's very obvious when you break your leg or when you wound yourself or when you have some kind of, you know, pain, it's very easy and obvious, okay, this is a physical ailment. But a mental ailment is much more difficult to notice. So you need to, and this is something that's not easy to notice, many people don't recognize it, so mental illness is, many people are living with mental illness without realizing that they live with mental illness, that's one, and second, they self-medicate with things like drugs, alcohol, tobacco, and various other things that are highly problematic and actually don't achieve their own goals, they just self-medicate with these things, you know, and they don't realize that they can actually get much better medications and therapy and address their challenge through that. So for how you can recognize that you have a mental illness is looking to see whether your everyday activities are somehow inhibited by mental patterns. If something changes in such a way that you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed out about things that you previously weren't overwhelmed or stressed out, that you lose some motivations that you previously had, that you feel uh, that your relationships, that people with whom you had previously healthy relationships, you're feeling more stressed out and annoyed over them. And this is, uh, let me be clear, not like for a brief period of time, but for a systematic period of time, for a couple of weeks and not changing. Those are some good signs of mental illness. Another good sign of mental, not a good sign, but those are some signs of mental illness. Another Mm -hmm. sign of mental illness is psychosomatic symptoms. Psychosomatic refers to, uh, so somatic is body, psycho is mind. So mental uh, things that happen to your body because of your mind. So for example, one way that mental illness is expressed within me is through fatigue. I feel strong fatigue. When I did not do any physical things, it would cause me to be fatigued, not like I ran for a while or played tennis, but just everyday and ordinary activities, feeling a, a great amount of fatigue. That's an example of psychosomatic mental illness. Uh, So another psychosomatic uh, experience might be stomach pains that are not caused by anything. So we have quite a bit of research showing there's a strong connection between the gut and the head. And so things, it's often psychosomatic stresses are often expressed in the gut. So if you have a lot of stomach pains and your doctor can't find anything that's wrong, it's likely due to mental challenges of various and there are two major categories of mental illness anxiety and depression i have mine falls into the anxiety category and uh, depression is lack of motivation sadness fearfulness and so on anxiety has to do with uh, feelings of fear feelings of worry that can a drive you to stop doing what you're doing this motivates you or drive you to be very intense and trying to change things very intensely in a obsessive compulsive way. And that's kind of more of my category. So I tend to overwork, overdo things. That's more of the problems that I suffer. Uh So uh, you can do things to address that in a healthy way by facing and understanding and recognizing what's going on and then scheduling a consultation with a therapist. That's a very uh, light and easy thing to do. A therapist can tell you whether they're, what you're suffering may be symptoms of mental illness. So that's one thing that you can do. You can understand that you know, another thing that people often run into that they don't recognize sufficiently is going on for them is that they feel guilty over feeling over mental illness. They feel that there's some stigma around them, around mental illness. And that's really bad. That's really harmful. Our mind is an organ of the body, just like, you know, Anything else is an organ, just like our stomach or just like our foot, you know, anything, just like our liver. All of these are organs of the body. And the mind gets sick as all other organs of the body get sick. It's very healthy to recognize that and uh, to protect our mental health by getting a mental health checkup if we suspect there might be anything wrong with us in any sort of way. Going to a therapist, uh, going to our, if we don't have a therapist, going to just our, pri- our family doctor, but ideally a therapist because therapist is uh, specifically trained to, to deal with these things and exploring the situation and trying to address the situation. Now, again, 
the crucial thing to remember is that we as individuals are in charge of our minds, of our emotions, of our behaviors. And this is what the mind, and this is something that we can change. We can change a situation of mental illness if we get to it in time. Now, the longer that we go without getting to it, the more dangerous it becomes. So um, with my wife, that was an example. She didn't catch that she was experiencing mental illness in time, and so she suffered a nervous breakdown, which was really bad. So uh, she couldn't do anything for a long time. She couldn't take any responsibilities. She, she just was really stressed out, crying, uh, having a lot of anxiety over everyday things. It was really bad, and it caused me a lot of stress as well as her. I mean, obviously it was much worse for her, but it was quite bad for me as a caretaker. That was part of the reason I developed my own anxiety disorder. So not recognizing and treating your mental illness in a timely manner can lead to it getting much, much worse. And mm-hmm. she, it took her about uh, took her two years to start becoming everyday functional after that, and she's still recovering. It happened about three and a half years ago. She's still not fully recovered. She's recovered in most things, but she still can't take... We used to take a walk every day for up to two hours, and right now she can't walk more than uh, half an hour, and uh, for much slower than she used to. So that's one area where she still hasn't recovered. But in most ways she has recovered, but it's really taken her two years to become everyday functional, and she, like I said, not fully recovered. So I recognize everyone. I recommend to everyone to make sure to take care of themselves and wow. deal with any mental illness that might uh, they might be suffering that's awesome thank you for sharing that and being candid and sharing that with us uh, uh doc that is absolutely uh amazing and uh, radically important uh, and it's a message that definitely needs to be out i commend you for putting this in the book <laughs> in section two uh, of the book uh, there's a chapter that, that that's uh, entitled our friends and the enemies of wise choices i thought that was quite interesting walk us through that Sure. So uh, this is a. There's been some really interesting research showing that people in our social network are have a strong influence on us, uh, and it's not easy to recognize that they might sometimes not impact us well. So that's what the chapter is about, and it talks about how we recognize that our friends are impacting us and how do we make sure that they're impacting us in a positive manner. So research shows that if our friends start smoking, we are likely to take up smoking uh, and the opposite. So if our friends, um, the studies show that if our spouse gives up smoking, we're about 65% more likely to give up smoking. And if our close friend gives up smoking, we're 33% more likely to give up smoking and of course vice versa. And the same thing for losing weight, the same thing for making other sorts of decisions. So if our friends make a decision that is unhealthy, we are likely to, and without even realizing it, we are likely to make similar sorts of decisions. You know, have you ever been in a restaurant where, uh, you know, everyone was making, where you and your friend were making an order and your friend decided to order dessert at the end of a meal? Now, that makes you much more likely to order dessert at the end of a meal, right? (laughs) And vice versa. If your friend says, no, no dessert for me, you know, what, what's the likelihood that you'll order dessert? So even without making any overt impact on you, talking about smoking or not talking about smoking, the, you know, talking about ordering dessert or not talking about ordering dessert, the friend's choice will make an impact on you. Similarly for smoking, similarly for losing weight, because we are social animals. So this goes back into some of the earlier research on what I was talking about, about tribalism. We are all part of a tribe. We live as part of a tribe. So that's what, uh, we are tribal animals. And so we have to keep that in mind. And we have to keep in mind that we are made, we as human beings have evolved to be part of a tribe and to be powerfully influenced by our tribal members. So people who are, we consider friends, are people who are from our tribe. And so we will do things that our tribe members do. And we will not do things that our tribe members do. So that is a basic component of what recent research on what's called network effects shows. Network effects is about people who are in our network powerfully influencing us. And those are just some examples that I cited earlier. So 
how do we address this, knowing that people in our tribe, in our, in our network, powerfully influence us? Most of us choose friends randomly. We choose friends from you know, people in our high school, people in college, you know, people in our workplace, and so on. They're just people we happen to uh, get together with. So interesting research on friendships shows that people who we are in geographic proximity with are the ones we are most likely to start friendships with, to be friends with. So uh, there was a study that people in a cadet uh, academy, in a police academy, were most likely to be close friends later in the force when they were in the police force with people who they were sitting next to on the desk, you know, when they were in the cadet academy. You know, just random geographic proximity is what causes these friendships to develop. Uh, and so that is a problem if we're not in geographic proximity with people who are good for us, who make good choices. And so, you know, if you are in uh, proximity with a person who is, let's say, overweight or smokes or so on, that's bad. Or in many other things that's, that will have bad impact, impact on yourself or in other choices. So it's about choices that they make. So fortunately, you can address this. Knowing this about yourself, knowing about the external influences on yourself, here's where we get to managing our minds, managing our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. You can choose the company you keep. It's not easy. It takes intentional change. Just like everything in this book is not easy. It takes intentional, effortful change to recognize that, hey, you can develop new friendships with people who are going to be healthier for you. So if you want to, uh, let's say, improve your physical health, you can join a walking club or a running club or start going to a gym as part of a group. Again, it's important to be part of a group. So you can go to yoga or something like that. And all of these things, that's just an example for health. Or let's say you're part of a clique at work. You're part of a group that keeps bitching about the workplace and the conditions there. You're not likely to have a healthy attitude toward work. It's not part going to be healthy for your work culture or your promotion in the workplace. So you can choose a new clique. You can choose a new group of people who will have a more healthy impact than you in the workplace. So again, you can, in any area of life that applies, you know, health and so on, personal life. So choose a group of people who you want to be like and make relationships with them in such a way that they will impact you without you recognizing it. And they will have those impacts. Of, you know, they won't order dessert in a restaurant and you won't order dessert in a restaurant. And both of you will be better off because, you know, desserts in the restaurant won't be ordered. So that's a much healthier approach developing relationships so that friends your friends will not be the enemies of wise choices but the, they will be the supporters of wise mm. choices if you choose your friends wisely wow that's that's incredible you also talk about in this section of protect your relationships by cutting off your anger what do you mean by that mm -hmm. so we tend to be as individuals very strongly anchored to certain ways that we interact with each other. We have certain preferences about interactions and we want to interact with other people in those same ways. And that uh, can be highly problematic for us. So I talk about an example of a family member, my brother, with who uh, doesn't like to talk on the phone. And that's a problem because I like to talk on the phone. Many other people who I like to communicate with talk on the phone. My friends talk on the phone all the time. You know, so that was a problem for my interactions with my younger brother, who was more of the you know, millennial generation, whatever, who preferred texting and so on. And so I tried talking to, to him on the phone many times, and you know, it didn't work out, and I felt resentful, and I felt angry about uh, his. He kept saying that he will talk to me on the phone, and then he kept not doing it, and I kept calling him up, and he wouldn't answer. It was just bad. So... I started researching, and this was in the period when I was starting to get into the scholarship on decision-making. And mm -hmm. so one of the things I found in the scholarship was about anchoring, that we tend to be anchored to our preferred ways of interacting with other people. You know, so older people um, tend to like the phone more. And by older people, I mean people who uh, you know, are of my generation. I'm in my mid-30s, you know, mid-late 30s. So not old people, but people who are older. Whereas younger people prefer much more texting. That's a, they much prefer texting to talking on the phone. And once I realized about this anchor, that I had an anchor, now that 
places the responsibility on me. If I want my, a relationship, a good relationship with my brother, I have to de-anchor myself. I have to go and say, hey, this is what's going on with my brother, and this is a problem that I am keep being anchored to my preferred way of communicating. He is not uh, he is not aware of this anchoring thing. So, okay, so I have to take responsibility for changing the situation in such a way as to be healthy and to have a healthy relationship with him. How do I do that? Well, I need to de-anchor myself, and I need to orient toward uh, having communication interaction in the ways that he prefers. So with reluctance, I started to focus more on texting and texted him, and that related or released, resulted in a much better communication modality mm -hmm. with him. So I was able to communicate with him with a much healthier relationship just because I switched my way of interacting with him. And many people don't realize this. They keep interacting in the way that they prefer and not interacting in the way that other people prefer. And so mm -hmm. as a result, they miss this communication with each other and they just can't have a relationship. And that's really unhealthy and that's really problematic for maintaining relationships. So that's why the chapter is talking about how to protect your relationships by cutting off your anchors and figuring out how you can most effectively maintain your relationship by communicating and interacting in general in the way that other people prefer. Wow, that's incredible. Um, last question, because we're going to do a, a, another part of the series with this uh, amazing work. But in that same section uh, of truth seeking and other people, there's there's a, a chapter called um, collaborative truth seeking. What does that mean? So that talks about so this book is about truth seeking, and that chapter is about how do you do truth seeking with other people. So okay. truth seeking with other people. Uh, when you disagree on a topic. And this is a pretty complex thing to do because we often, when we disagree on topics, we want to uh, intuitively present facts and argue our opinions. But you know what? The research on facts and how do you argue and how do you figure out things um, through argument actually shows that arguments are very ineffective for orienting toward the truth. They are not really good for figuring out what is true they are much more effective for defending your perspective, not for figuring out what's true. So they're effective for um, maintaining your mental map of reality versus updating your map of reality toward what is real, what is the case. Arguments, um, so there's some really good research showing that arguments, when we think of arguments, we think of war. We think of, we think of defending ourselves, defending our view, we think of attacking the other person's perspective. We think of undermining them. So these are things that are not conducive to figuring out what is the actual truth because the truth might be that you're wrong. The truth mm -hmm. might be that you're mistaken. And if you have a perspective of an argument where you need to just defend yourself, then you're not going to orient toward what's true. And so the chapter in Collaborative Truth Seeking, there are several chapters. So the first chapter goes into how you orient toward collaborative truth-seeking and how you defend yourself from uh, having this argument mentality. So it talks about the problems with arguments and it suggests that collaborative truth-seeking might be the, uh, is going to be a much more effective uh, way of addressing the situation. So that's the, what the focus of the first chapter of the collaborative truth-seeking series is about. Wow, incredible. Uh, as I said, we, this, this book is, is uh, too good uh, to to allow for uh, one uh, uh, interview. We're going to have to do a series uh, on this, ladies and gentlemen, because it's just uh, uh, he covers literally every single base uh, that you could possibly think of in terms of critical thinking, including uh, critical thinking in, in, in politics. Uh, and so we're going to have that conversation uh, uh, next. Uh, in, in, in our series with Dr. Gleb Kapersky. The book is called The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. Um, absolutely wonderful piece of work, so needed. As we end this year and begin a new one, uh, we want to make sure that we don't do uh, some of the same things, some of the same era ways of thinking that we uh, did in 2017 and before and take that into 2018. This is the time to be able to make a permanent change uh, 
uh, in your life, in your way of thinking, in your way of being and doing. Uh, and this book is uh, a, a, an amazing guide uh, and process to be able to do that. So I thank you, Dr. Sapersky, for uh, manifesting this work. It's absolutely incredible. I'm so glad to be on. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to our next interview. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. We'll see you. Well, we won't see you on this one, but we'll hear you next time on the Philippe Matthews Radio Show. Take care, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.